Hello, everybody. We are back with another Bald Move Prestige film. This time we're going to be talking about Almost Famous, the 2000, just 2000, 2000 film written and directed by one Cameron Crowe. You might recall uh, our discussion of him from Vanilla Sky. He also is the man behind Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, what's the J- Jerry Maguire, Jerry Maguire film mm-hmm. um, and a few others. Um, we. It stars like, just an amazing cast. Like I started this thing begins with um, kind of a lo-fi credit sequence of just names being scribbled on like a you know, journalistic, you know, line paper. And like every mm-hmm. fucking name, I was just like screaming a little bit louder. Yeah. Billy Crudup, Dr. Manhattan himself. I, I learned Francis how Mc- to pronounce his name correctly uh, because what, of this what movie. is it? Because I watched an interview with him, like a reunion thing on a podcast. And it's apparently it crude up. Crude up. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Billy crude up. Uh, Francis McDormand, uh, all the way from uh, Fargo and uh, Burn After Reading. Mm-hmm. Kate Hudson, who I've, I think only seen in this film and a lot of other terrible <laughs> and, and many other more terrible ones. Um, Jason Lee, a frequent collaborator with Kevin Smith. Patrick Fugit, which uh, I think he was one of the leads on the HBO Outcast series. You're right. Uh, Anna Paquin, Rogue, of course. Faruza mm-hmm. Bulk, uh, famous witch and Waterboy aficionado. <laughs> yep. Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, the great one with a clutch role as this like kind of bitter, burned out uh, veteran rock journalist. Mm-hmm. Zoe Deschanel as the uh, the sister of the hero of the story uh, and of some some really early work. Jimmy fucking Fallon uh-huh. stumbles in this movie at some point, as does Rain Wilson and Mark Marin and very kind of blinking you miss it cameos. Uh, of course, I don't know if it's fair to say the cameos. They're just almost extra. They're extras with lines in the, these movies. Oh, uh, yeah. It's so early in their careers. It's, you know. And uh, special thanks to Commissioner. This is a commission podcast. Andy Johnson, a longtime listener, and it goes all the way back to 2013 with us. So it's had a, a lot of history and nice. we appreciate your support. Yeah, I'm uh, going to get your comments real quick. But before I start, I want to know, like, hey, have you seen this film before, Jim? And, and what did you think of it? Uh, I haven't seen this film before. Uh, and it's 21 years old at this point, which puts it at like. I would have been almost the perfect age to see this when it came out. I would have been 18 in 2000 when this dropped uh, just a few years older than William. And I'm kind of sad that I missed it because I really liked this movie. Yeah, I I liked I like this movie, too, because it's one of my favorite types of movie. I've realized this like a road trip movie. I sure. fucking love a movie like and we've had a couple of uh, of of recent notes like Easy Rider. Um, uh, Rain Man turned out to be kind of a road trip yeah. movie or a, a hostage movie, a kidnapping <laughs> sure. and then road trip movie. I love just there's nothing more like because I just love road trips, man. I love the sensation of like falling asleep. Someone else is driving. You wake up and it's like, where the fuck am I? You, you get out of the car, or the, the the bus or the station wagon or the van and like, fuck, there's mountains or an ocean or, or I'm in Topeka. You know, there's nothing. <laughs> you know, or you're in the middle of a desert. You're like, it's yeah. like you just like, but that's like kind of the excitement of like, I'm not home. I'm far away from home yeah, and yeah. I'm I'm not coming back anytime soon. And like I feel like this film really kind of captures that. Um, the music is unbelievable, and we're going to talk yeah. about that because there's a lot of original music. You know, mm-hmm. like this 
this could this could have fallen into the pr- the trap of you know hey we got a really good band that's a fake band they're supposed to be making bangers but uh you know we don't know how to write good songs we're just hollywood writers so fuck it yeah uh, it does not do that these are legitimately great songs i think on the soundtrack um and again just seeing all these like big future names up and comers mm-hmm. well-established actors kind of like just starting out um doing amazing performances i i thought that stuff was really good um and i'd never seen the film before either um the the only thing i didn't like it the thing the the only reason i'm like over the moon about it is because i don't have a huge background in this era of music like this is uh, heresy i know but i want to yeah, hear about it because yeah. nothing. i'm 44 it's not going to change i don't really have a lot of affection for led zeppelin or pink floyd god damn or, you've, you've never uh had the pink floyd wizard of oz experience nope never have gotten the hmm. let out really i mean i i like some songs i'm, oh, I'm not man. a hater i just yeah, like yeah. i that that wasn't my jam you know when my my mm-hmm. mom and dad's music growing up was not this it was more kind of like neil diamond beach boys kind of stuff more soft rock and when i started acquiring my own musical talent it was shaped or not talent appreciation it was shaped more by like 80s rap and speed metal sure so i never quite got back so like all this kind of seems almost um like like an alien experience you know and obviously i didn't come to like sex drugs and rock and roll until my late until my to my early 30s so like i didn't have these Mm -hmm. kind of like coming of age experiences like uh cameron crow did here but uh other than but even still, it's just it's just a lot of fun to to watch the movie. And they really soften a lot of like what's probably some dark material um, if, if we went back to like the real, real life story. And I, I got some things to say about that. But yeah, I I uh, appreciate this movie and thought it was a cool watch. It's a good way to to, to spend two hours watching a movie. Yeah, uh, I really love the main character. And I know he's not like been in a ton of things that are really high profile, but there's something perfect about him for this role where he's got this wide-eyed optimism in the face of you know lester bangs who is this super jaded critic uh kind of a mess of a human uh telling him look this is how it's gonna be these people are not your friends these people are gonna tell you everything promise you the world and deliver nothing and then you've got this kid who's in the middle of it all he's just got this his goofy like effusive smile that he's got through the parts of this that are have to be like thrilling to a 15 year old right uh getting to meet all of your idols um you know getting to be in the center of the action getting to talk to a bunch of really attractive women like be in the room where it happens right you know with with your favorite bands yeah yeah there's something perfect about his mannerisms that just really work as the lead of this you said young women. I think you meant chicks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. The part. My, right, my, that's, that's, I, I like the music, but I don't have the parlance of the 70s. <laughs> the fact checker from Rolling Stones uh, uh, called and said that the actual quote was was chicks. So yeah. we, we need to get that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do we want to do we want to uh, bring in uh, Andrew Johnson here uh, to uh, talk yeah. about the, the, the his commission? And then we'll uh, dive right in, shall we? For sure. Uh, Andy says, I'm doing this commission almost solely to support you guys which that's that's nice takes the pressure off uh getting a podcast on almost famous is just a bonus i picked this movie since it's around 20 years old which would make them less likely for you to have seen to have seen Hmm. 
well done in in your bald move trajectorizing mm-hmm. and uh triangu- triangulating that's uh, that's well chosen it has a great cast uh and uh, including uh Philip Seymour Hoffman in his prime Jimmy Fallon Rain Wilson the music is probably what put it over the top for me the Led Zeppelin Elton John songs these are perfect they actually got yeah. Uh, you know, I think it helps being a famous uh, Rolling Stones writer emeritus and mm-hmm. having like the people that he had uh, as his technical advisors uh, on his side to get that. But like, yeah, I think they've only approved their song in like what one, two. No, it's a handful of films. They're not. Yeah, not, but, they don't give out their license like candy. Before I don't know what it's like now, but before this, I know that they had only ever approved one of their songs to be on a soundtrack for a movie. Hmm. So, yeah, Zeppelin's notoriously stingy with their stuff. But, but then, I don't know, they'll do Apple commercials or whatever. Who, who knows? Yeah, well, it's, it's, they're stingy, but, but uh, you know, the, there's always but a big enough stupid. dump truck full of cash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got to get what you can, <laughs> when you can, where you can, while you can, as right. Jimmy Fallon told me in this movie. Um, says, I, uh, it closes up with, I hope you enjoy it, but again, no pressure. Actually, there's a PS in there. It says, as a side note, over the years, my family have been watching the movie Live Watches together and miss not having any last Christmas. I'm sorry, man. We actually intended to have, mm. like, the most of the stuff's going to be built around Live Watches. And then, like, Amazon just pulled the rug out from underneath us and took all the Christmas stuff content off literally Thanksgiving weekend, which had us right. kind of scrambling for... But I, I hope they don't do that this year. We, we might just figure out a way to, like, you know, do a, do a live watch, the classic style. Because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they're a lot of fun. Uh, OK, so let's, I guess, uh, thank, thank you again, Andy, for commissioning this film. It's a lot of fun. Let's let's dive in. Um, I guess I should tell people, because if they're in the same boat, you and I are. Um, what is this movie about? Why should I care? This movie is about a 15 year old kid who grew up with, say, a strong, dominating mother, um, perhaps controlling mother, and Hmm. uh, gets his first, he he, he talks her into going to his first rock concert. Uh, She drops him off there, and through essentially pluck and luck, he gets uh, this crazy string of circumstances that that leads him being a cover, uh, writing a cover story for Rolling Stones magazine on this band Stillwater that's that's blowing up on the third album, touring the country. And he essentially embeds himself as a journalist as they go around the country uh, trying to figure out how to navigate from being a small band to a big band, how to deal with fame, fans, money, girls, drugs, real shit, relationships. Uh, and, and he gets to tell that story. Will this 15 year old kid be able to uh, nail this cover story for Rolling Stones? Will he get laid? Will he kill all of his brain cells on drugs? Uh, you, you'll have to watch the movie to find out. But that's uh, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all set. I mean, obviously, if, if you know anything about music, this is set firmly in the 70s. Yeah. And if you don't know anything about music, uh, the the fashion and the hairstyling will will get you there anyway. Spell bottom uh, jeans, some big mustaches, long hair. Yeah. Yeah. So where do we want to begin? with uh this this film um here's an idea mm-hmm. uh the one thing i did identify with at the beginning is, and when i think I, a lot of people missed is uh francis mcdermott that's not her name francis mcdormand she's a lot a she ton. reminded me very much of a secular version of my mother and that line 
Yeah, that line that Zoe Deschanel says about her boyfriend saying that you use knowledge as like a prison or a cudgel to like keep us in like very much reminded me of my mom because my mom is, despite being uh, in a crazy cult, very highly educated um, in terms of like literature. And and she and she would use like it's very ironic because she'd essentially try to forbid me for going to college. But she's got like, you know, this this college degree and she frequently used that as like ways to argue against my brothers and sisters when we would try to be like. You know, can't we do this? And she'd be like, well, I know more than you. And she'd flash out. The, and I it's just like, yeah, it felt like bullying. But I read so many contemporary reviews that like praised the mother as being like Roger Ebert was effusive about like what a great mom she was. And I, I felt the same way. I liked this. Character. Um, really? I, I okay. had a lot of respect for this character because I. I found her to be, yes, overbearing and. It's interesting because I I don't quite understand the difference between the way she treated her daughter and the way she treated her son because her daughter was forbidden from listening to any of this music. And yet when she leaves all these records behind for William, he seems to have no trouble playing them and putting up posters in his room of of all these bands and stuff. I I don't know if her mind changed after her daughter left um, or what, but I, I found her taking William to the concert and letting him go on the tour and all that stuff to be like super respectable given how worried she was. She was like, well, I'm super worried about this and there's a lot of danger here, but also I've raised what I think is a responsible young man and I don't want to hold him back from what he seems to want to do. That to me was like the, the core of the character that made that, that character someone i could respect as opposed to someone who i looked at and said oh you're this overbearing uh you know coward essentially yeah i i can see where you're coming from on that for me like i don't the other thing is this is very autobiographical for cameron crow i've heard and yeah. he there's a lot of the, we, we've talked about this in vanilla sky uh, i'm sure fast times original high is the very same he's there's a lot of autobiographical shit in his movies um, but I felt like this mother, it was, the, you're, you're right. Like you're supposed to believe that I think she raised Zoe and Zoe was that tight spring that she just like kept clenched in her fist until mm. at 18, she was forced to let go and she just flew off into random direction that, that really bothered her. Like mm-hmm. the fact that she had run her own daughter off. Um, you know, and hadn't that that daughter apparently hasn't come back for I think three years if I was four years if I was following the chronology of the film correctly. Yeah. Um, that should have a pretty strong effect on on a mother and maybe have them course correct. That didn't for because my my mom did the same thing. To my sister, she my mom my sister <laughs> left the day literal day was screaming in tears that t- that she turned eighteen and never never looked back and that didn't change how she treated me or my my brother. But I guess maybe that's one of the things that bothered me. It's like, where did this mother come from that was like, mm-hmm. OK, I'll let you go to this. Even though I'll let you go to this music concert. I'll let you do this tour. I'll let you, you know, and as things continued to like, you know, she she gets these half heard phone calls of women in this bed and drugs being offered and all this other stuff. And these kind of sketchy rock stars answering the phone and glibly. Yeah, I just I don't know. It felt it it, it, it clashed with my like my preconception of how this person would actually behave. And it kind of I, sure. I found it kind of jarring, but um, that makes just like, sense. Also, just like what a shitty way to raise your kids that you're trying to like, you know, as a bitter 40 year old intellectual that has probably gone through, 
you know, the Vietnam era protests and, you know, the, the stab corporate establishment and the military industrial complex. You try to instill those values into your kids mm -hmm. like you try to pre embitter them and and scar. I, I don't know. It just really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I get it. Um, it. So I found out a juicy tidbit and, and you talked about this being semi autobiographical for Cameron Crowe. But I think yeah. he's also blending a little bit of other real life people uh, into this right. because Lester Bangs, who's played by Seymour Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, is a real he is William um, in a lot of ways, too. Uh, he's a he was a writer for that cream magazine that you see at the beginning of the movie. And he's a writer right. for Rolling Stone for a long time. Preeminent mu uh, music critic of his time, essentially. And he grew up in El Cajon uh, California with a Jehovah's Witness mother. So I think oh. what they're doing here, right? <laughs> right. Okay. I, I this saw this and I was like, holy sense. shit, this makes perfect sense. I yeah, think what they're doing is kind of what exactly what you said, like a more secular version of your mom, who is a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what they're doing. They're like, well, we don't want to really go into like the religious stuff about this, but we do want that restrictive sort of overbearing um right it, you know uh whole thing here that oeuvre right of of being right, right, in a right. witness household so i think this is a little bit of lester bang's childhood and cameron crow's childhood kind of mashed up yeah and there's a little bit of horseshoe theory effect where like if you look at it, like extremely fundamentalist christian upbringing and an extremely i don't want to say liberal but kind of like intellectual leftist professor upbringing it kind of warps together where it's like it's it's like this is the way i have a very strong understanding of how the world works mm -hmm. and how the world treated me and i'm scared to death it's going to do it to you and by yeah. god i'm going to do it's my job as a parent to put you on the rail to thread the needle between the you know and but but that that makes a hell of a lot of sense oh my because right. i had my notes like man this is my <laughs> other uh, she's not quoting the bible she's quoting like fucking marks and Ingles yeah. and but like yeah the 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 tone and the cadence and just the like I know better and you can never understand really mm -hmm. came through that's yeah, especially an, that's restricting an amazing detail yeah like what what you can read what you can listen to all that stuff that that that's obvious that's like that's and instead of it being one well, for JW parenting right and instead of well that's that's satanic it's like that's that's corporate and industrial right and, right yeah turn and also secular. like. It, there's also a special hell for like I feel like parents that like teach their kids wrong because like I broadly agree with a lot of Francis McDormand's um, philosophies here, mm -hmm. right? But like if you treat treat if you if you if if you teach a kid about like the underlying horrors of all the things going on in society, you're actually teaching them how things really work, but you also are putting them at a disadvantage because. One of the ways the things actually work is people are kind of blissfully ignorant about that kind of stuff. Hmm. So, like, you yeah. are giving your kid a competitive disadvantage by instilling too much cynicism and too much kind of like world wariness, because, like, I think that kind of stuff develops naturally like a patina. Mm hmm. And if you try to distress it or fake it early, it just gets weird, man. I don't I don't know. It, it, it keeps yeah. the natural development of. You know, like you said, a kid being wide eyed and, and full of wonder. And then eventually we all get to where we're beaten down a little bit. And 
like I said, you get that you get that uh, patina. You don't want to clean it off because that ruins your resale value on Antique Roadshow. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right. Shows your authenticity and age. Uh, OK, well, I'm, that's that's a, that's a cool detail. But that's the one thing that like I found very jarring because I'm like my mom would have just fucking, you know, roll, rolled in there with the cops and the mm-hmm. guns blazing and just yanked me out of there the very first time I missed my first phone call. And then that would have been the adventure. No Rolling oh, Stones. Yeah, cover, my, no. my parents wouldn't yeah. let me do that in the first place. They wouldn't have taken me to that concert. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, they, and so- they, they wouldn't have allowed me to put up like all the posters of all the bands and stuff. Yeah, I, I had several yeah, albums yeah. snatched from my my clutches. Um, another thing I thought was interesting is I guess Brad Pitt was supposed to be the Russell lead guitarist, yeah. the, the magnetic mystique driven guy. Uh, and for some reason, it just, you know, I, I, I was trying to read between the lines because I couldn't find a lot of information on what happened. But they apparently Crow and uh, um, Pitt came to the mutual conclusion that it's just not the right fit. So they bring in Billy, Billy Crudup. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny because like they like Cameron Crow mentioned, it's like we left all the lines about him being very pretty. And I'm like, isn't Billy Crudup a good looking man? Yeah, I, I thought that was actually, like a. Yeah, that was pretty shitty to have that <laughs> quote there. Yeah, you know, we, we didn't have Brad Pitt, but we left the lines in anyway. Whatever. Yeah, we, we brought in this rando Uggo, and, you know, <laughs> right. it's uh, we got the pig to oink on cue, and we did, we slipped and wow. we slapped a blonde wig on his head, and that's all we can do. Yeah, it felt a little, a little bit like that, but I thought he did a really good job, and he oh, does, yeah. like, have, you know, like, this is a man capable of playing Dr. Manhattan. Uh, a character full of fucking power and mystique. I thought he pulled this shit off amazingly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like, I don't even know what it would go, but I must also be say that, uh, Brad Pitt would have probably crushed this role as well. I wonder what didn't work out between them. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of like what qualities Crudup has that Pitt doesn't, uh, that just make this work. And, I'm thinking, okay, Brad, Brad Pitt's like sly smile would have worked. His like boyish looks and charm certainly would have worked here. I I don't know. He's also got that way of like, you know, delivering like rock solid, like dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, he would, I think, crushed everyone in the scenes with the kid where he's kind of like, look, kid, here's the way of the world. You know, I, I think that that would have worked that well. This would have been um, like very soon after Fight Club. So I feel like that would have worked pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. He's got kind but, of an image uh, did, as a bad boy. Here in the real world, it, it did not happen. Yeah. Um, what did you think? Because uh, I've never seen Kate Hudson in anything that I've liked much. Um, I yeah. thought like I I remember because I missed this movie, but I was a huge always have been a huge Saturday Night Live, Night Live fan. And I thought her SNL outing kind of sucked. And then I saw her in just a bunch of kind of forgettable rom-coms and kind of like, you know, weird action romance Mm -hmm. movies. And I never, you know, like, and the the thing is, is like, she's got like in real life, she's kind of got this spacey air about her. Yeah. um, That I don't think, at least for me, works on film. But I thought that she is really, really, really good in this film of playing a character. Like when you first meet her, you believe her that she's just invincible. She's made out titanium. Nothing can hurt her because she's never going to take anything serious. And if you that that line, you know, if you if you don't take anything serious, you never get hurt. And if you never get hurt, you always have fun. And I, I remember I wrote in my notes, like, I wonder at what point that philosophy will actually bend and then break. And then also like or maybe it never will. Well, it obviously does. And that moment 
that um, William reveals that she essentially got traded for a case of beer and a pack of smokes to another band mm-hmm. from her, you know, uh, infatuation with this uh, Russell guy. I thought she did an amazing job of portraying like exactly that, the bending, the breaking, and then the nope, fuck it. I'm still titanium, but ultimately, you know, went on to lead to a super, a drug overdose. So yeah, yeah. now she's, I mean, that scene is like the one that you could point at and say, this is an incredible piece of acting. Um, and like you, I haven't seen Kate Hudson in much. She just doesn't do the type of movies that I like to watch. Uh, but right. she's fantastic at this from, Top to bottom. I, I think that that one scene is standout, but the rest of it is so solid that. Yeah, I was super impressed. Um, I don't plan on going back and watching a lot of her catalog because, like I said, no, <laughs> not really my thing. But if she's in something that I am interested in, I will be 10 times more excited after having seen this. Yeah, she also um, I, hasn't been in a lot lately. Like the last thing that I can oh, yeah? even think that I would have seen her in is like Kung Fu Panda three in oh. 2016 as a, as a voice actor. But guess mm-hmm. what? They're making a sequel to knives out and she's in it. Okay. That I'm interested in. So that will be, I think that's the next time I'll probably come across Miss Hudson. And, and I am kind of interested in seeing that. Cause I could see, cause that's, you know, knives out one obviously was kind of like a big star studded ensemble cast with a lot of eccentricities. And I think she's going to fit into that, you know, hand in the glove. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person from the cast that we've kind of talked about um, is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, he's great, obviously. I've seen probably most of the things he's been in, like the, the majority, certainly. Um, and every time he's just as good as the last. Uh, in this, he's playing this Lester Bangs character who I mentioned was a critic for Rolling Stone and that Cream magazine. Um a lot of the movie seems to have like mashed up, you know, a lot. You, you talked about, um, was it Crosby stills Nash? Who, who, who was the, the one who jumped off the third story? Allman balcony? brothers, right? I think Allman this is like, yeah. like, like a bit, a lot of the backbone of the plot is like Allman brothers touring shit. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, there was that experience that they mashed up. And then I think what they were doing in some of these, scenes is mashing up a little bit of Lester Bang's life too because um th- there's I, I read a story on on his Wikipedia about how one time he went up on stage. He he came up on stage with a typewriter at a Jay Giles band concert and <laughs> and presumably wrote a review of the show on the stage while it was going on. Uh and I it's felt a little roll, bit of that energy in the scene where William is pulled up like just off stage uh, when Stillwater goes on, maybe for the first time and he's about to take mm. notes, right? He's there writing with his little pad and Kate Hudson pulls the pencil out of his hand and is like, no, just watch the show. I, I feel like that was the movie saying like the critics can sometimes get a little too involved in being a critic and not enough being music fans. Although I don't think anyone would accuse Lester Bangs of that because he was first and foremost, a music fan, just like he's portrayed in this movie. He was jaded uh, by years in the music industry, but also uh, very much a fan of the music he wrote about. Yeah, there's uh, and that some of that stuff I thought because I, I thought a lot about like you and me and Bald Move during um, some of this movie, too, and in, in terms of like that struggle, because like I found I find myself thinking that many times when I'm 
mm-hmm. forced to watch movie for the first time, for example, like almost famous, but also forced to take notes or like when we do a first run movie, like the war between like, yeah. ah, I need to write this idea down so I don't forget it. So it'll make a good podcast versus I'm going to miss the next 30 seconds of this film when it's a home right. and like almost I can just pause it. But even then, it takes you out of like the rhythm of what the movie it's like. It's a worse experience like you mm-hmm. you know and i imagine a, a rock rider when you're just at a show and it's like it's this one night and it's going to be gone like that must be a, a, a tough because like you've got to think about the thing you're actually making but to do the thing that you're making you have to enjoy the thing that you're listening to right uh but they're at odds you know and that's like they are. man at so many levels in this movie there are the odds between the creativity and the vibe and the mercantilism yeah. that they're trying to, to go to. And even uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, like he's he's like uh, an indie darling, right? He's He's got a much smaller magazine, zine, uh, cream. Mm-hmm. He's talking shit about Rolling Stones because, you know, Rolling Stones, oh, sure, it's big. And you'll get a thousand dollar draw and you'll get an expense budget and you'll do all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, you'll work with Hunter S. Thompson. But the editor is going to step on your shit. They're mm-hmm. going to change your things without your permission. They're going to pull your shit and, you know. All those things are true, but you also get the thousand dollar expense account and right. And you do have to make money at the, at your profession. Right. And if that's criticism, you have to find a way to balance those things. Yeah. Um, I don't feel it's being a band. You also have to find a way to balance the music and the money. Uh, Staying on Philip Seymour Hoffman. I really liked him and I thought his role was crucial because this is essentially like a Joseph Campbellian. Okay. Hero's journey. Mm hmm. He, I was about to say, he is the Campbellian wizard figure archetype. He is yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, when the hero is down, he is just a phone call away to dispense some wisdom, to teach him something new about the Force, uh, a.k.a. managing editors and <laughs> groupies and rock band personalities. Um, he doesn't, you know, fight the villain and and uh, get, get sacrifice himself in the end. So there's no, like, threshold crossing there. But I, I thought he is exactly what because like that's the thing. Like Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman is very cool. But Philip Seymour Hoffman is specializes in playing weirdos. You For know, sure. um, the only time I've actually seen him play. And we, we mentioned this when we were doing um, the incredible or the talented Mr. Ripley is like, that's the only time I've seen him play like a fucking alpha Chad and he fucking mm-hmm. crushed it. All right. But mostly he plays like these guys. Who it's like, you know, the reason people like and value what we what we talk about is because we're sharing these honest and authentic experience or experiences as as deeply uncool people. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like if I'm reading between the lines, like there's a cachet in essentially having nothing of interest of your own to offer. So like you're and then there's no agenda because you're never going to be famous. Uh, so like you mm-hmm. can tell the unvarnished truth without and that's obviously bullshit because you know, even this guy, like he's writing for an audience, right? He's just not oh, writing sure. for himself. So, but I, I thought that stuff was good and he's just very good at that. Um, I, I was, I was delighted with his performance. Uh, Jason Lee. Yeah. Is such a fucking good, like acerbic curmudgeon. And he's just a perfect kind of like, and I won't even say he's a shit stirrer because I think he's got legitimate beefs. Like all the shit that happens, it gets him all worked up and spun out. But he's just like, I think he's one of the best actors. Like once he gets like a head of steam, like of, of, of outrage or indignation, he just kind of yeah. like fucking rolls. Uh, That's how every movie it, I've ever seen him in uses him. And it's perfect. Yep. 
Yep. Like give him a monologue where he can kind of like the, the brakes the melt halfway through it. And he just kind of like, you know, uh, <laughs> just, just, just plows through it. And I thought he was, it's one of the few times I've seen him in something that's not like a sitcom or mm-hmm. a stupid Kevin Smith uh, film, which yeah, I don't, I'm not saying it dismissively. I, I like my stupid Kevin Smith yeah. films, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, this is a, a serious role. He took seriously and, and he smashed it out of the park. You know, when you're talking about you not being super into this music uh, that that's portrayed in the film of that era, uh, I was thinking this movie could be made about just about any era or genre of music. It doesn't necessarily have this to be the true. 70s because so much of the shit is the same across the board. And I would love to see Jason Lee playing Dave Grohl in a Foo Fighters inspired rockumentary sort of thing. Because mm. he doesn't he have that look? Isn't isn't he? Looking very grolish in this movie. If he were to like update his appearance for the 2000s instead yeah. of 1970, yeah, I could see, I could see that, I could see that. And and you're right because like it's not like just you could write this about any band, but like every era where we have a genre that's created and then yeah. it's new and it's dangerous and it's weird and the 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 powers of be haven't quite figured out how quite to to co-opt mm-hmm. it and put its tendrils in. Like you could say that about. Uh, you know, obviously rock and roll, rap music, grunge would be a great one because that was another yeah. kind of like, you know, trying to break free from the establishment and do something new and weird. And, you know, uh, I, you're right. It, that would be a great era that you could you could do an almost famous 90s edition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love that. He's probably too old to play young girl. They'd have to get somebody else, but he could play current girl. No problem. <laughs> he could play girl's manager. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I, I, you, you brought it back to the music, and I want to talk about that because we, we talked about yeah. famously, you know, a lot of times when Hollywood tries to write like fictitious bands and we always beat the fuck out of Lost every time we talk about this because mm-hmm. that that band um, had a terrible single. Um, no way does that get, I mean, I don't know. Every, every time I start thinking that, I also remember the Bismarck key charted with you got what I need, which is like one yeah, of the most God awful right. songs in the universe. Like if you tried to write a bad song, you couldn't do much worse than that. And so I, I don't think, is it, is it Mary? Is that who he plays in Lord of the Rings? I don't, yeah, I, I don't yeah. think Mary has a much better voice than Bismarck key. So, uh, huh. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, that's yeah, that's but that's the thing. Like it's it's sometimes, but but most of the times, like things that are good are good. Like they stand the test of time, and we're supposed to believe that Stillwater is one of the best bands of this time, which is one the you know what you know Philip Seymour Hoffman's talking about like rock is already dead. I don't think it's dead. I think it's fertile and exploding, and that's why the money is is flowing to it, and that's why it's it's actively mm-hmm. corrupting because it's it's now getting powerful and established in middle age. Um. But I thought the music was incredible because they did like, you know, remember we were talking about Scott Pilgrim. Like if you want to have a fictitious yeah. band, have actual bangers, you get a fucking couple really good musicians to write some goddamn bangers for you. And they followed that to a T here. Like Cameron Crow uh, at the time married to Nancy Wilson of heart mm-hmm. co-wrote like three of the five Stillwater films in this. Uh, Frampton wrote two others. Uh, Mark, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam played the lead guitar on all the tracks. Yeah. And I, it's so funny because Stillwater, because I started researching. And I'm like, I got to look at the Stillwater band because this is like a real big tell all. And the thing that fucked me up is there's a real band from the 70s called Stillwater. Yeah. And I started reading the Wikipedia article and going into the bands. And I'm like, wait, these aren't the same band numbers. Did they reform or something? Is this like a current? 
uh, because of the band, I assume just split split apart and, you know, did a right. uh, Van Halen type of thing. And but no, they took the real band, licensed a name from them and just completely made up the other details, uh, which really tripped up my <laughs> my research for this. Uh-huh. But these Stillwater songs are jams, man. They are. Uh, Every time one came on, I was like, God damn, those are good. And I, I knew at this point because I looked it up that this was like a fictitious band. Um, and I was just thinking, man, they wrote some really good music for this movie. See, I, I, obviously, I didn't because the story I just told. But I was I, when I was listening to him, like, man, because I don't I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of this era. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like I'll hear a song and I'm like, oh, I kind of and, and, you know, run it down. I'm like, oh, this. Oh, yeah, this is a fucking uh it's an old Led zeppelin song or it's old you know pete town yeah i don't know why because i'm i don't even know enough to like fucking make references up um but i as i was listening i come like i think i've heard this in a commercial or something or like mm. on a best of i kept on thinking <laughs> that like i had recognized the songs like just from a few bars of it but i didn't these were all original and they're great um yeah. And that that's just the five original songs. Mm-hmm. This soundtrack is like if you like 70s rock. I do. Um, And, you know, not not just that, not just the uh, the um, uh, Pink Floyds and the Led Zeppelins, but the Elton Johns, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just one of the greatest soundtracks I've ever heard. Yeah, man. Cameron Crowe's got a way of picking extraordinary music for his movies. Uh you know, like I wonder why Fast Times has that right. Right. He's a world renowned writer. Uh, Grew up at Ro- uh, Rolling Stone, apparently. Uh-huh. Uh, just knows Peter Frampton married to the one of the members of Heart. One of the leads. Yeah, of he's Heart, called and, Peter know. Frampton. Hey, man, I want you to write some. I want you to be the technical advisor. Uh, beat up all these 70s guys. Make them give me their music. And oh, by the way, write half of the soundtrack for me. Yeah. And he's like, OK. Apparently he screened <laughs> this for Zeppelin. Um trying to convince them to let him use his music, their music for the movie. And they agreed. And it, I can't remember if I said this on the podcast, but there was only one other time that they had let a soundtrack mm-hmm. use, uh, have a song of theirs on, on the soundtrack um, before this. And, you know, that one song made it on the soundtrack, but then they had like four or five Zeppelin songs, including like one of the just greatest chill out, like get super high, listen to, incredible incredible guitar i mean what what the led zeppelin shit uh page or plant shit which one is the guitarist which one's the lead singer i do god damn i got nothing man all right well one of them (laughs) everybody knows uh it is like what he's doing with guitar in the 70s is mind-blowing somehow he gets a extraordinary heavy metal sound out of an acoustic style. Um, hmm. It's like this noodly hmm. stuff. And rain song is like the one, the one song that if you were to say, Hey, I want you to get high and listen to a song. Which one would you pick? It's the rain song. Holy shit. That's such an amazing song. When that cue came on, I was like, hmm. this is going to be awesome. And then they don't do much with it. It's the, the Faruza box scene where she kind of sits down next to whoever and is like talking about, something i don't know it was such a nothing of a scene because i was i was stuck in the rain song and i'm like man they mm-hmm. really like I, I thought this was gonna lead into something really cool and they just kind of undersold it but i don't know i was a little confused by who feruza Valk's character was at all is she like a, a older generation of band aid or is she 
a rocker so. in another band. She always seems to be around, but not like with anybody. And it's very confusing to me. Yeah, I think because like I, I was I was wondering if she was in some kind of promoter capacity or a band manager. But no, I think she is. You're right. She's just a Band-Aid, but like concentrating on maybe other bands. So you kind of see them okay. when they're touring, like on the Almost Famous tour. And, and, and that, but like she also I mentioned they mentioned uh, late in the movie, Kate Hudson's talking about, you know, how all of her old friends and that's the other things. All of her old friends like from the last six months or so. Right. I've abandoned her and they mentioned her going to Europe with, I forget, Steely Dan or something. Uh-huh. Was that a 70s reference? Fuck if I know. Um, yeah. But I, I, uh, Steve Miller band, one of those guys. Uh, <laughs> sure. And, and I think that's like, yeah, she's just, uh, she's a band aid, but for a different band. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, her running yeah, into the wall. Like when she's <laughs> like, you know, so they, they, I, I, I fucking love it's like just from a slide. It's I, I've seen that happen before in like a slapstick movie. And it's mm-hmm. so funny that they put that in this. You just run. It's this classic scene. It's like, well, how fucking long are you going to run until this bus takes off? And then when the conversation's over, she slips it to the wall. Yeah. And there are a few things in this movie that are like that, where it's sort of out of a different movie, a more slapstick or sillier movie. Um, the other mm-hmm. one I can think of is when, they're in the plane and they've got all this turbulence. Everybody's confessing everything. And then the bassist, I think is like, I'm gay. And then, you know, the plane immediately, like the pilot opens the door. We're going to be, we're going to be fine. The lights come back on. I'm like, I've seen this scene in so many fucking movies, so many Mm. TV shows that it's like cliche at this point. And I didn't, I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was kind of cheesy and stupid. And then, oh, I thought it was funny because of what they did with it. But go ahead. I, I don't I don't what they did with it often. Yeah. Where what it starts mean? off the conventional, like kind of warm confessions about, oh, I love you guys. And but and but but the disaster goes like if the plane had gone down, then it all been kumbaya. Right. But the disaster just keeps on. It keeps on. And the the underlying tensions and fears start boiling. And then. You know, it, it gotcha. turns into something toxic. But then they also have the like, you know, yeah, it goes off the rails because like, oh, you fucked my wife when we were on that break. Well, I fucked right. all three of you. And yeah, it uh, it, it was hmm. good. I, I enjoyed the parts where it was happening. I guess I just didn't enjoy the punchline here because um, I've seen it a thousand times. Uh, I yeah. just once I want to see a movie end with one of these scenes where the plane is going down. Everybody's confessing and then boom, it hits and they all die. Like, and that's the end of the movie. Like, what did it all mean? Who gives a shit? Because they're all dead. It was all stupid anyway. Uh, so you want to see the Buddy Lee story, right? Or not? not so, uh, so that's right. That's part of the mashup Buddy here, Lee. right? Uh, the yeah. Buddy Holly, Frankie Valens, Buddy Holly, the Big you. Bopper. Yeah, that the day the music died. That thing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely an homage to to that. Um, but yeah, I would I like mean, to see name the, check, yeah. The the one in a million outcome, I guess, which is the plane goes down and the movie ends. Um, so I want to the other. Th- so another thing I that I connected this movie is because, um, you know, the 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 struggle between the creative creative impulses and trying to get paid um, is age old. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they're like they're they're, you know, like one is fertilizer. The other is poison. And 
you got to have some of the poison that you mm-hmm. got to you got you got you got to drink, which is actively trying to kill the, the the fertilizer that you're putting down in the in the creative process. If you don't have any poison, then you won't be able to keep buying for. I don't know. I've already lost the plot, but but you got to there's there's a mix here. And clearly there's a point where you can quote, quote unquote, sell out. And then you lose all integrity and your fan base sees your bunch of fakes and a bunch of phonies and all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also like, you know, if you don't do enough of it, then you won't self-sustain. Yeah. Um, and I found myself thinking about a lot of that in terms of, of, of bald move, because that's something that, you know, kind of we've struggled with um, sure. in terms of like, well, God, how many ads is too much? And what how much should we charge for the club? And should we have like one low price or should we have multiple tiers so people can give more? They should give more. But like, what does that even mean? Are we creating, you know, different classes of, of uh, you know, all fans are equal, but some are more equal than others. And how do we guard against that? And how do we keep that from influence us? And, all? and this is just that I, I, I stress at a at a, a extremely small scale, mm-hmm. you know, um, I can't imagine the pressures that you get when you're as big as this, especially when you got a guy like Jimmy Fallon running in and saying like, look guys, you know, I know you get best friends with your manager, but like, uh, you need to think about in terms of like your guy, your main guy almost got electrocuted and your manager stormed out, which kept you essentially made you guys pay for getting your bleed guitarist hand fucked up. You know, it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Right. And the fact that like yeah. this won't last forever. And what are you going to do when you're 40 and 50 and your kidneys don't work because you did so much drugs and alcohol? You need to get it yeah. like th- that's like this is an absolute truism of life that you got to get what you can get in this fucked up system. Why you can get it uh, and, and before it's too late or you're going to be destined to be poor and, and destitute and probably die in a gutter some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know how like that. That seems like that's never balanced that people figure out. Um. If essentially you get big enough that you, you get other people to worry about it for you. And then, then the thing, you can yeah. maybe concentrate on the creative process and try to get a. But like even in a but, but these like how is a band that has guys like, well, how old are these? That's the other thing. How old are these guys? This is the third albums in their late 20s. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I hadn't maybe mid 20s. And they've probably been touring since they're 16. They don't know fuck about like what Kate Hudson keeps referring to as the real world. They don't mm-hmm. know anything about Morocco. Right. Right. Um, I don't. I, yeah. Like, I don't. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know how you, you, you square that. But I thought it was interesting to see that this film is essentially all about that. Like the line between like honesty and success and transparency and making money, um, you know, like telling the truth versus not telling the truth. I, I thought, in fact, I thought there's a little bit of like a meta commentary about the movie itself. Like Cameron, I, Cameron Crowe, I don't think this is a tell all unflinching story about anything. And the first clue mm-hmm. is it's everything's been fictionalized. So people can't get too upset about it. And there's no, yeah. you know, every there's plausible deniability, but there's this, um, you know, um, I, I think the fact that, at the end of the day, the character tells the truth, but like, obviously, you know, from a place of compassion and understanding and the band flips at shit and pulls out their support and he loses his contract and everything goes in flames and the movie would just ground to a halt. Had there not been some deus ex Hudson, uh, uh-huh. that, 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 that follows it. Um, what am I like, I, I, am I making any sense here that like, I think that this is Cameron telling us, that this movie is a very whitewashed version of the truth. 
because if I told the real story and named names and did things, I wouldn't have the guy. I, I, I wouldn't have the famous people giving me their songs and I wouldn't have them writing songs for me. And the movie itself just wouldn't have worked. Right. So another, I had to pull enough. It's, it's yeah. another layer to the balance between the poison and the fertilizer that you're talking about. Right. He's got to write something compelling enough for an audience to read, but he also can't bite the hand that feeds him. And he's got yeah. multiple hands feeding him and he has to bite one of them. Take your fucking pick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, um, it's I not like Peter Frampton showed up and be like, Hey, Cammy, uh, you know what? The stop let's, let's stop beating around the bushes. Just make this about me. Put the call, call the, the main guy, call Billy. Yeah. Like that, that clearly didn't happen, even though this is about his life and that, and that's the other thing. It's like, man, in 21 years, the world's changed quite a bit. Like I was reading a lot of contemporary reviews again, uh, from people who usually are kind of sensitive to these issues. Mm-hmm. And no one brought up the fact that like the core of this movie is about very young teenagers do incredibly hard drugs with no supervision, fucking uh, adults being yeah. passed around like, you know, like like use like currency. That is like the, 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 the worst thing that happens is Kate Hudson just gets her heart broke, you know, <laughs> right. She didn't follow her own advice. Uh, and, yeah, and that was actually actually out. wasn't even a bad thing. That was a springboard for her personal development so she could actually grow up right. and, and get into the real world. And I, I feel like that if this movie was made today, because like that's the thing is like in the er, like in the 2010s and between mm-hmm. 2010 and 2020, like all this stuff started blowing up where people are like doing the math and like, you know, how young were these girls and yeah. how much drugs were they on? And, and looking back and and actually critically exam- like what the hell happened with all this culture? Um, none of that is in this and in this movie. But honestly, as a 44 year old uh, parent of a of a 14 year old that I could easily see being in this role. Uh-huh. Like if I was a lot more restrictive, like my son's precocious and he's, you know, mature for his age and I could see him busting out and doing shit like this. I had a lot of anxiety about it. Hmm. Like nothing quite happened as bad. Again, Kate almost died from a drug overdose. But again, that was that was the rock bottom she needed to get on with her life. And I, I felt like there was a little bit of that. That's that core kind of like whitewashing lack of honesty that this project had. And nobody was wanting to hear anything about this 21 years ago. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we talked about this in in terms of like the fashion industry too and the devil wears prada review that we just did um which you know things come to light right new shit comes to light all the time um and you recontextualize entire industries if not uh, you know just the bands in them um yeah because yeah shit comes out that says hey this was actually a pretty bad scene for a lot of people maybe not the bands the bands were having a great time doing their thing Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes Mm -hmm. the bands too but Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I have to take it for what it is, but that did bother me a little bit too, because every time they were like, teehee, I'm, I'm 18. You're 18 too, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm, I'm 17. Oh, me too. 16. Me too. Actually, I'm 15. I was like, uh-huh. God damn, this is gross. And then that scene where uh-huh. like, you know, Feruza, but it's not Feruza Buck. It's uh, Anna Paquin and uh, Bijou Phillips or whoever, a couple of 
the pixies oh, are the dancing around room? William as he's in his underwear on the bed. I'm like, this is a rape scene. Yeah. 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 Yeehaw, everybody. Let's It's probably go. statutory. All I, I don't know that. Well, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's 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 borderline. I think all these the people are like eight. That's the other thing is like they uh-huh. never actually show an age inappropriate relationship. Sure. Um, it's always a hinted that like, oh, she's making puppy dog eyes. But there's not like the scenes of the like all four of the band members raw dogging. There is one scene where Kate Hudson is in a robe in Russell's room and has like a bottle right. of champagne or whatever and, you know, falls on top of him. There's an implication there. But yeah, yeah you're right. They don't show anything. Which is, again, I think is, is like and it's it's they he carefully constructed this flowering scene is like, well, let's make sure there's no like creepy 40 year old woman who's like the ringleader of all this. And it's all girls about his age. Right. And, you know, um, but if, yeah, that. Felt- not great not great yeah um although as a 15 year old boy this would probably be nirvana for me right like i that's <laughs> right but that's the thing it's like you know that's um um but yeah i mean you're you're right and that's the, one of the reasons where there's still this kind of hypocritical stance even nowadays yeah. between like when when boys get inappropriately sexualized at a young age versus when mm-hmm. girls do because it's like it's seen as like ah, oh, you know girls are innocent need to be protected and boys are supposed to be doing this kind of shit but like i also think that like i'm glad it worked out for i guess the real life inspirations and and they had a fine life and all this stuff but like this kind of stuff can easily fuck these kids up oh yeah uh and probably likely did you know um you know the the drugs the the parasocial relationship like i mean because the thing is like i don't think people knew at the time because like a lot of it's like well hey man they're just girls like what we're supposed to do check id and stuff it's like the the real wisdom is just don't fuck your fans man there's no way (laughs) to do that and not be like nakedly exploitative yeah um but i feel like that's stuff that we kind of figured out in the last 20 years or so like Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the greatest thing ever happened to the fan and the pride band enjoys it, too. But like they think that this is a forever everything and they you're going to be, you know, miss uh, whatever guitar player. And it's going he's going to leave your wife and do that. Probably said a lot of things when he's in his cups and in his and in, in, in his lines that that has implied that and made you think that it's true. But oh shit, we're in New York and that's where my wife lives. And you can get the fuck out of here. Mm. Uh yeah, they didn't. They they really really cleaned up that part, those parts of the movies. Because again, this movie's about what a good time this was, not what a gaping. But yeah. the thing is, that's the other thing. It's like he doesn't have any problem dealing with the dark side of like what this does to the band relationship, what this does to the 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 money and the managing and all that kind of stuff. But he is playing because that's something I think the people, the rock stars themselves, kind of agree and identify with. I don't think there was a lot of appetite for introspection about how they were were using people. Um, but I I mean, uh, William does say like at the end, you know, he gives this big speech mm-hmm. about how, you know, you always talk about the fans and blah, blah, well, here's your greatest fan. And you just used her. Um, and they, they go into it, you know, I mean, the $50 and a Heineken uh, is, is the part where they address it. Um, yeah. And that's some of the most effective stuff in the movie. So I, I think they do get there. It's just most of this movie seems oblivious to that fact until damn near the end um, where you need that turning point. And I, I guess that works. I do want to go back yeah. real quick to the Jimmy Fallon, um, you know, passion versus money sort of stuff, because mm-hmm. one of the things I thought was interesting about this character is he comes in and he says a lot of shit that you could look at and say, well, this is going to destroy the band, right? It's it, the tour bus life is gone. They want to play more shows faster, get 
you know, grab that money while it's out there. And that can very easily burn out a band. That can very easily cause sure. tensions within the band. It can change the dynamics simply because they're not on a bus together for 12 hours a day driving to the next city. Um, mm-hmm. all, there's all magic that, to that. Right. All of that can change. And I, I thought it was funny when Doris, the, the bus, the tour bus is like mm-hmm. the first member of the band to leave uh, when they go on the plane. <laughs> But yeah. it, it, then they, were, they some, were thinking they were thinking of Doris when they're going down on the plane. That's <laughs> like, <right>. you know, <laughs> no, I, I look at some of the um, suggestions that he has, and they are also things that will give them at least a shot of getting to where they want to be, because the stuff he says about, do you know how to do this? Do you know how to do a, a headline show? Do you know how to do any of these things that are their goals? Right. They, they have no idea how to get to the place that they all want to get to, which is playing yeah. huge arenas, being big rock stars, making music that millions of people love. The Jimmy Fallon character comes in and can roadmap that out for them. Right. And that's where, like, you know, he's not just the money guy who's going to push a bunch of, like, changes down their throat only to make money. He's also going to get them to their destination. And so things get fuzzy, right? Um, and I think taking him on is probably ultimately a good thing for the band. Um, even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment, I think it would propel them to the places they wanted to get. But, yeah, but it's a matter of like, like does, do they change in the process? How much do they change and how much do their right. fans perceive that they've changed? Maybe even if Cause, they have because he knows how to open the doors and extract maximum value from a product, but he doesn't know how to write to, to string together the right chords that can change the world. He doesn't know how to craft a lyric that can right. define a generation. These and how guys much do say is he going to have in that process is the question, I guess. And, and, and part of that process and even even like upgrading from bus to plane, like you, you, you mentioned, it seems like mm-hmm. but like being stuck in a, a tour bus for a day or two and just bullshitting and noodling on your guitars and like mm-hmm. coming up with. That's probably vital to the creative process, having the downtime, yeah. uh, bringing a show, fr- like making the show fresh every night. Well, if you're doing, you know, a uh, couple shows uh, on the weekend, driving to another city, doing a couple shows, uh, that's different than when you're doing, you know, two shows, fly another city, do two shows, fly another city, do two shows. And there's no yeah. step. It's just hotel to hotel to hotel, two hour flight, two hour flight. I, I, that, that made a lot, a lot of sense to me, you know, because you can, you can spend so much time extracting the value that you don't like you're just squeezing the sponge for as much as you can get out of it but there's nothing putting stuff back into the sponge yeah so when you end up being dry then jimmy fallon cuts you and moves on to the next band that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing Mm -hmm. um but have strung together to write three chords and the right couple paragraphs of lyrics so and then the other you know, the inevitable uh, speed bump you hit down that road further is what happens when you get so successful that you no longer have any challenge in your life mm-hmm. and the sponge mm-hmm. is, is wrung dry because there's just nothing else to write about, right? So many yeah. songs are, are born of hardship, are born of mm-hmm. loss or grief or, you know, any of those things. Some of the best songs come out of that. What happens when your life is a cushy, uh, couch that you just sit in all day and you have no challenges, or, right? Or even if it's not, even if you've got like, uh, like, so like it's easy to write about being a 16 year old, you know, getting your first kiss or yeah. being no one believing in you or having an abusive background or whatever. Like, like, you know, you're 20, 24 year old and you're writing that song, like you got some emotional distance from it. 
it's relatable because everybody's been through that. Right. But like when you're a rich person, a famous person, you know, there's tons of like sharks and fiends and self-doubt. and But like, number one, it's scary to talk about the shit you're currently going through. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's great to talk about the shit that you crawled through and you emerged stronger. And now you're famous in life. It's a lot harder to talk yeah. about the shit you're currently going through right now because you're, you're right up in it. And the stuff you're going through is not relatable. Yeah. Like, ah, fuck, man. My guy I thought I was my friend. Fuck my, you know, well, I guess that's that's pretty relatable. <laughs> but like, you know, the fact that uh, your real estate agent then did their due diligence and their pools cracked and it's going to cost you $500,000 to fix. Like, yeah, you know. That's that's one of the reasons like Harmontown stopped is like Dan moved to Malibu and got a mansion and is like, how is he going to sit here in front of like a sweaty crowd of nerds uh, that are like 18 years old and like relate to them at any at any point without just being a massive phony? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What a great what a great line, though, that I didn't invent the rainy day. I just have the best uh, umbrella. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want. Yeah. At. uh, I don't know what you I don't know how you resolve those tensions. I don't think anyone does. If they did, there'd be books about it. Um, yeah. So oh, I'm sure there are books. I don't know that any of them have answers in them. <laughs> well, they probably just choose one side like, well, follow what your bliss and don't ever sell out. And you might you might die poor, but you'll you'll die happy and content. And the other is like, here's how you make all the money. And then, you know, how, then, then, mm. then you can just medicate your deep sorrow away and fill it with booze, drugs and, and companionship. Um, I want to talk about the thing that's like the central thing in this film, which I don't even know why they put it in. But like, why did they have William fall in love with Penny? And why? Like, and I thought there's a couple scenes where implying that there might have been some reciprocation. Like, I thought um, when Feruza Balk threw the deflowering party with uh, Anna, <laughs> Anna, Anna Paquin, mm-hmm. um, there's like some energy to pass that like, was a fore gleam of her finding out about being traded for a, a case of beer and a pack of smokes where there might've been a little hurt, but she also knows that she's the titanium girl. And so she can't, you know, she can't be a hypocrite cause that's not cool. Um, but I guess I never really bought it. They always felt like they were like friends and confidants, but I never understood why. And like the, the, the bizarre scene of like when they're pumping her stomach and they're playing like this love song and he's like making moony eyes at her. It's like, that felt really weird to me too. Um, what did you think of that? Uh, Because it's a central kind of love triangle, you know, unrequited love all around. Yeah. Um, What did you think of it? I think you have to remember where she's from. It's important. Um, the fact that they are both from San Diego, I think, is like a determining factor in this relationship because all of it revolves around what's real and what's phony. And the way I was interpreting it is. The stuff that Kate Hudson that um, Penny has with Russell in this movie is the fake stuff. The stuff that William could have with Penny is the real stuff. And hmm. this movie, it's surprising how much it's about Penny as well. Uh, even yeah. though William is the main protagonist, Penny comes into her own in this too, because there's there's a lot of questions she has to wrestle with, like how much am I willing to chase this fantasy versus am I willing to you know step off that bus maybe a little prematurely and get real with somebody and i don't think she ever is but there's always that's like the dynamic i think that's going on is the russell is the life that she maybe thinks she wants to have and then there's the real stuff that she could have with william 
and the fact that they're both from the same hometown, I think, is like important there. Hmm. And, and it's you know, Russell's also looking the for the same world. thing, right? He's looking for the real yeah. thing, even though he's got the a wife, thing, yeah. he's got Kate Hudson on the road. It's it's weird. Um, but he but knows he goes out that he wants that's not to, real, right? Yeah, he like wants to his, find something his, real. Like his wife was probably a, a version of real at some point before he became, yeah, you know, Russell, Russell Hammond Stillwater or whatever his name is. And but she's not real now. Like it's kind of going back to your, you know, like if you could go back right now to your bedroom as an eight year old, that's that was real to you then ain't real to you now. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you, you're you're probably right. He's looking he's looking for something real, desperately craving authenticity because he worries that he's he's sold himself out and he's losing his mystique. Um. Yeah, I, yeah. I I think it worked thematically better than it actually did cinematically, and I think it's part of yeah, it is yeah. like I didn't feel like there was any chemistry between Hudson and uh, um Patrick Fugit, I guess. Yeah, he's an interesting actor. I think he's great for the parts of this movie that require a wide-eyed sort of right. naivete of a child. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. That stuff he just knocks out of the fucking park. His his smile is contagious. Uh, his his big eyes and everything he's seeing. But I don't. I, I'm with you. I don't know that like the romantic parts of this worked quite as well with him in the lead. Yeah, and not to and say he's like bad. Dude, it's he, just it was a a dynamic that wasn't clicking on all on all fronts. Yeah. It kind of felt like the little like he, he kind of came across a, to me like the little brother in Goonies that's, you know, yeah. has a kiss with his brother's boyfriend and it was great for him, but it was like kind of nothing for her. And yeah, um, a, a sadness about it, which I don't know if because like, again, this movie tries really hard never to dwell on those moments very long. Sure. And I don't think, like I said, I don't know the movie was in because he could make all the same points as caring about her as a, as a person, you know, um, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, one other thing that I want to mention that the other, um, I guess, big name in this movie that we haven't talked about yet is Zoe Deschanel. Uh, I know you're a fan of Zoe Deschanel. Yes, I do. I like her a lot. Yeah. OK. Um, I like her in some things, not most things. I like her in Elf a lot. Uh, she's kind of perfect for that role. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not like her in this. I think she's kind of bad in this, like very stilted huh. line readings. And wow, it just doesn't her thing that she does, which is, you know, it's it's copyrighted, right? It's trademarked <laughs> and everybody knows what a Zoe Deschanel performance is. It doesn't uh-huh. quite work in this role for me. It's interesting because I like early Zoe Deschanel because it's like before Hollywood figured out how to pound her into that manic pixie dream girl box and saw mm-hmm. how like that was like just catnip for, you know, lonely, nerdy cinemaphiles. Um, I, I thought that like, you know, like you, you mentioned her in Elf, like how genuine she is in here. And I thought like, you yeah. know, because usually she's a lot like in some of her later stuff, she's a lot spacier and, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, wide eyed and manic pixie dream girl. Right. Um, here, like I, she just came across as a, a, a very determined woman that's raised by a very strong, determined woman, very intellectually formidable. And she knows what she wants and she's going to go out and fucking get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought she pretty much crushed that role. She had a lot of like my sister energy, you know, like I, that's why it's like, I really identified with the early goings of this film, like watching 
you know, someone go like, you know, just like, hey, wow, you can just achieve escape velocity, like maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. at great cost and with a lot of fire and thunder and smoke. But you did it like, damn, uh, I, I, I thought she did a great job. And I her I didn't expect her to return to the film. Like, yeah, yeah. So when she showed up at like, it's um a little bit Deus Ex Zoe Deschanel, Deus Ex Chanel. But, but like, yeah, like he's at the low point and she's coming off from her rotation and just can pick him up and remind him that he's going to be a cool person and give him the shot he needs right when he needs it. He met the, I guess he's, she's, mm-hmm. if we're going back to the Campbellian stuff, he just met the goddess. Sure. Um, I thought, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Like, I don't know what your problem with Zoe Deschanel is. Um, It's literally like I've got the opposite. A a few line readings. Yeah, I I just don't Mm. like how she delivers some of these lines that are, I think, meant for a more conventional actor. Um, Mm. Yeah, it just it just does some work for me. I don't know. I mentioned a little bit about the cinematography, because I think we both agree that like Cameron Crowe is pretty workmanlike, um, you know, as a director. Like, yeah, uh, he's got big ideas. and He's got a bunch of thematic stuff he's trying to do. and um it's a little bit like, interesting in vanilla sky but not, it does not over the yeah. top yeah right but i i thought that like you know just the vistas like the road trip stuff that i like they crushed that they got the magic hour shots they got both dawn and dusk versions of them mm-hmm. the big sweeping vistas in the american southwest but also and i think this is something that cameron crow probably either knew how to do intimately or knew the right people to call but they really nailed the concert stuff yeah and like the studio stuff, like this stuff feels like they could you could rip out minutes of this and it would be a, pr- a plausible music video. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought plus, I think he actually did direct quite a few music videos. I think that he the, has he, done, the, yeah. you can tell like the movie really sings when it's shooting the music and about uh, and about the music. And I thought that 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 was really interesting. Mm-hmm. OK, I so we've talked about the cinematography, the music, the performances, um, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in this movie that's just cool from a writing and dialogue perspective and just great, like great scenes. And I kind of thought maybe we could trade off uh, talking about those things. Um, do you want to go first or me? I'll go first because I have the, the okay. dumbest, funniest line in the movie. Okay. Jason Lee. It. He's great. Uh, he's talking about you know it's it's when william is first introduced um at that first concert and he's sitting Mm -hmm. in backstage or whatever in the green room and he's like don't print any of this and then he goes on his tirade and he's like i I look for the one guy in the audience who isn't getting off and i make him get off that Mm -hmm. you can print (laughs) yeah that is like that's such a good line I also love the scene um, with earlier William when he's in school. He hasn't found out that he's 11 and he's in a bunch of 13 and 14 year olds. But there's all these kids like standing in front of the mirror and they're like grooming their little patchy beards and 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 cookie dusters. And mm-hmm. like at this man, that's such so fucking real, because like when you first start getting facial hair, it's like, oh, man, I want to do something with this. But you're not ready to no. you know, you're like this field is not ready to have 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 any kind of sport played on it. It needs <laughs> it needs time to develop some bulk to it. I, I like the scene of all the boy. And then you, you pan down to him, who's the 11 year old has got nothing. Yeah. Uh, and this is the look on his face. I thought that guy got a big laugh out of me early on in the film. <laughs> and that whole scene where they tell him how old he is, is great. It's like, tell him, tell him how old he is. I'm, I'm 12, right? Like, I know you held me back a grade. And she's like, Oh, I held you back another grade. 
you're God, 11 and then she tries to go on about something else and he's like 11 <laughs> this makes so much sense now but no knowing that that mother was cribbed from a jehovah's witness right? because this kid doesn't celebrate birthdays so how the hell would he know how old he is i remember having that problem and yep. also the fact that she's celebr- celebrating christmas in september classic jehovah's witness move the like yeah oh, randomly have a party around. Yeah. yeah, we give a party. We'll give a, a party in September because it's far enough away from Christmas that like nobody it's, it's not as it can't be close to your birthday. It can't be close right. to Christmas. It can't be close to any. So like you got to you always have these weird things. And like it wasn't for me in September because my birthday is at the end of August. And I was too close. Mm, of course, for me, it was more of like, you know, around May or June or something. But like this, God, it makes so much more sense now <laughs> that that piece clicked in. Yeah. Um, I really like the t-shirt scene like i can't because like the thing is is like you and i are a true kind of 50 50 partnership um the idea that like if we had a a picture of us both on a shirt and one of us would be in (laughs) shadows and yet although let's face it if it was you would want to be the one in the shadows and you would want to be in the taking all the light and i think it'd be a pretty funny goof too so <laughs> okay, well, watch watch merch.ballmove.com coming there soon. But but like I think that that must be that really must get in the band's heads, man. Like where apparently it, or like a sport, like you know, like it's it's hard to play with Michael Jordan. But like if you're the lead singer and you're not, you're kind of the second banana on a uh, a band, and you know, like this the classic front man versus everybody else. I thought that stuff was was well done. Uh, how they should show like and the band was so happy until those T-shirts hit. Yeah. And it's like that one little thing. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, OK, well, it's not it's not our not his fault that everybody's kind of gravitating to. And, and he gives the best quotes and all that stuff. So we'll paper. But like you just keep on. And but but something like that will be the little, you know, irritation that like that, that rips it all open again. I thought that was a, a great scene that that got at it some kind of truth of of being in a band and, and having a creative collaboration like that. Yeah. Where like the cracks in their dreams start showing. And I think it's, it's such a beautiful moment of, uh, naivete, this young band who formed and said, we're going to define our roles in this band. Like that's not a thing you get to do. The, the audience will define your roles in this band. And if the drummer is going to be the standout in the audience's eyes, guess what? Your your t shirt is gonna have all of you out of focus, and the drummer is gonna be up front because Dave Grohl. That's baby. just how it fucking goes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like, it it was just so naive when they said like we agreed on the dynamic. I was gonna be the front man, right. and you were gonna be the guitarist with Mystique. I'm like, you fucking idiots. You don't right. get to but you can see them that. play. You can you can probably see them playing that shit out though when they're like you know riding tour bus. Oh and like, yeah. Hey, well, what's our hook? What's the you know, it's kind of like uh, remind me of uh, that thing you do where mm-hmm. they decided that the is, did the drummer decide that or was that Tom Hanks's idea that he has to always wear shades because it, it gives I him don't something. Remember. God, that's such a good movie. But it's like it's like it's it, I've been wanting to rewatch it, too. Uh, maybe this yeah. is. Oh, you know what? I think I we, we might just pick the upcoming prestige. Uh, I think it would so. it'd be a nice pairing with this. Mm-hmm. Um but but yeah, like that kind of thing where it's like what and we used to do that, right? Remember when we like tried to come up with shtick? Oh like, yeah, oh, we'll open up our breaking bads with us stripping down to our underwear because that's what Walt and <laughs> right. Jesse did. And we'll have the zipping and it's like, oh, you know what time it is? It's time for us to cook a pot. Like that yeah. shit. And just like little affectations and, and whatnot. And uh I think it works yeah. better like defining 
defining a character whereas bands don't have characters right bands are just like yeah. you play your music and whoever the audience identifies with is going to be the person who's at the lead the front of that band it, it's it's different when you can create a persona um that you you know do on a podcast or whatever which we i, I think we flirted with a little bit like oh how do we want to approach these podcasts do you want to be like the straight man and i'll be the funny man or right. vice versa and like Whose color? Who's? I think ultimately player, yeah. we decided that was too artificial and silly, and mm-hmm. it, you know we're just, we just are who we are at this point. But mm-hmm. it, I, I find it would be like doubly hard for a band to do that because you don't have a lot of FaceTime um, or, but, or voice time, right? What was crucial is when we were doing that big dreaming. We were in our thirties, man. Like yeah. when we we're figuring all this shit out and like I imagine like because everybody sure. had like your best friend that you're hanging out when you're 15 or 16 and you're out in the woods or you're at the theme park or you're at, you know, the whatever local hangout and you're bullshitting with each other and talking about like, oh, if we make it big, we'll do this, that and the other like and that those dreams don't come true. And the, but like, what if they did? Like, mm-hmm. what if your garage band did blow up? Yeah. But like it, it's 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 your dream, right? But it probably didn't go exactly how you talked about it, mm-hmm. especially as sixteen year olds or whatever, right? Um, like did not have the kind of you know, uh, I just remember something Timothy Oliphant always said because everyone uh, I listened to an interview and they said you know you're a remarkably grounded guy, you know you, you seem like you handle fame really well and all that kind of stuff and like you know what's your secret? And he's like I didn't get famous last thirty, I had a wife. <laughs> And I had a house and I think I had a kid and it's like that like yeah. kind of shit gets you in perspective where if you're like, you know, Justin Timberlake, a Britney Spear, um, those guys are in the, the <laughs> they're in the news right now. Like, how the mm-hmm. fuck do you process that as a child? You I don't know, know man. Yeah, it's not not a, not a lot that, that can demand to do that. Um, I guess you get you up, got- you take acid at a house party, you get up on the pool house and sh- start shouting lines uh, from Dennis's. Uh, Dennis's playbook from Always Sunny. I am a golden uh, god. Yeah, we've already talked about the implication too. Like we've, we've Dennis has been <laughs> right. close to the podcast here. Uh, they, that's this has to be where they got that from, right? It yeah, it probably. In fact, I'm I'm actually I wish I could relive the last twenty years because I bet. Like, I feel like uh, half the sales guys I've met have cribbed that like, I, hey, I didn't invent a rainy day. I just got the best world's best umbrella. I feel like right. there's there's a lot. This is kind of like Casablanca. It's like when you're growing up watching Looney Tunes, how much that shit gets referenced and mm-hmm. you're not aware of it. Now, so it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to I bet there's a lot of pop culture references in this that have, have, have really escaped into popular culture. I was just completely ignorant of it. Yeah, maybe the standout scene for me in this aside from the William and um, Penny like $50 in Heineken scene uh, mm. is when Russell is at the concert he's uh, William's on tour with him and Francis McDormand calls up and is trying to speak to William and then Russell gets on the phone thinking oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna steamroll this lady and, and just like you know the the clerk at the hotel desk uh comes away from that going your mom really scared me <laughs> like that that conversation that those lines she has are so good so good yeah um i really like the line that william says to seymour hoffman where he's like you know people in school i'm not cool people in school hate me 
And Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of takes a look at him and is like, ah, don't worry about it. You'll meet them in the long march to the middle. Right. Right. (laughs) Which is like not saying, hey, you're not going to peak. Don't worry about that. But everyone's going to just descend to this kind of mean of massive of of faceless humanity. And you'll see him again. You'll see him at the checkout line and you'll see him at this and that. I thought that was really funny. It's not even like. Hey, don't worry. You'll figure it out. You'll come into your own. It's like, ah, we're all mediocre. And it just, we'll all realize that at different points. Uh, you know, the pretty people yeah. will get old and, uh, yeah, I thought that was, uh, a great line from the Hoff, the Hoffmeister. It is. I don't know why he put it in here, but like that scene where the Rolling Stones managing editor is like, uh, uh, CBS will let us use their mojo. It's this new way to send pages over the telephone. It only takes 18 minutes a page. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the very first fax machine. And the idea that now yeah. I can send you a two gig audio file in like 30 seconds. Uh, I just, I get it. Right. And I wondered why I wondered why they kind of fixated on that was that that's just the fun. Cause like you imagine, and that's back in 2000 where the internet hadn't really started taking off yet. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought that was a screamer because like, clearly Cameron Crowe's like, can you get a load of this? How long it used to take? And 20 years later, we're like even way beyond that. Yeah, there are a couple of moments that like. It, it, you know, the, the differences between now and then really become apparent. The other one to me was the airport scene where Penny's taken off on the flight and William is running down the terminal, following her through the windows. and. Mm-hmm. It took me a second to realize this was before 9-11. And so you could actually go to the right up to the gate with a loved Mm -hmm. one and see them off as they left on the plane. Uh, Nowadays, you are not getting within 500 yards of the plane or the the gate. You're you're staying back behind security. That to me was like such a oh shit kind of moment. Dude, I think Love Actually, which was made in 2003, is the last film that depicts people waiting for people at gates and like you know uh-huh. like like being that that class because yeah like i remember you know going driving at the indianapolis uh airport to pick up my uncle and mm-hmm. waiting for the gate and his family coming off and hugging him and all that stuff now it's right. just like you got us waiting a cell phone lot and then they paid you and you pick up and a cop screams at you from the time you stop till the 10 seconds right. later when you hustle off like a fucking f- criminal fugitive mm-hmm. uh it's just such a different experience now um, it is. Yeah. And this was like right on the precipice of that all changing. So it it really struck me. Yeah. Same. Same. Like that is just a, a bygone. It's it's like seeing people smoke on airlines. Yeah. You know, it's I, like, I was never fuck. around for that, really. I mean, mm. I flew back. It, it had to be like just before 90 because um, yeah. I was like eight. We went to Hawaii or whatever. So that would have been like 1990 right. and people weren't really smoking on airplanes back then. That I remember the very first flight I took in the 90s was I can remember people smoking, but really? like, yeah, okay. I must it pretty much became, yeah, or maybe I was young, but I do remember a flight where I was annoyed because I the smell of cigarette smoke just really irritates my mm-hmm. sinus passages and stuff, makes me kind of get like <laughs> I don't sets think my you're allergies off alone in that, yeah. Yeah, but some people don't. It doesn't bother. It just it seemed like I, right. I it doesn't seem like no shit. I'm like, my eyes are going to water and I'm going to be coughing and all. Like, I'm not doing this because I'm offended that you're smoking. It's because, mm-hmm. but like, I remember being kind of like irritated. Oh, God, I'm going to be stuck here for like four and a half hours and I'm going to be like fucking sneezing and coughing and my eyes running and all that. But yeah. Yeah, that sucks. Well, what are you going to do? Ban it. 
done. Yeah, done. Speaking of done, are we done with this? Are we done with this film? I think so. Well, Andy, I, I hope you did enjoy it. Uh, that's that's why I, I know that's not your primary goal in commission this podcast. But hey, it's our primary goal when we're fulfilling it. Uh, I do. Uh, I did. We both enjoyed this film. So that that takes some of the pressure off. But I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for your support. The bald move been with us for two thousand since 2013. That's incredible. Um, eight years. Holy shit. That's almost the beginning. Yeah. And I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for commissioning this podcast. I, I've kind of been wanting to see this film for a long time because this is one of Bill Simmons, who's the one oh. of like my two pillars of got me into podcasting. Like, well, three, I guess There's a three legged stool. got me into podcasting. This motherfucker right here, Jim Jones, uh, Bill Simmons and the Penny Arcade guys. And this was like one of his all time favorite films. He's written many articles using this framework as like a I, way to explore championship sport teams and all that he's probably got i'm sure the ringer's got a uh, rewatchables on it which i might check out but uh I, it's been on my list for a long time so thanks for giving us the epi- uh, impetus to to watch it uh, and i really enjoyed it you know um, even though i did really threw me to see a non-jehovah's witness jehovah's witness mother on film it was <laughs> right it was like a fucking weird out-of-body experience every time she was on frame yeah like, like i said at the beginning i'm i'm kind of sad i didn't see this sooner because I think it would have hit harder when I was younger. Um, Dude, yeah. even better. If I, saw, if I seen this as like a 23, 24 year old, it would have been a lot different experience. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason I didn't see this is such a stupid one. Um, but I think I confused this movie with both election and the people mm. versus Larry Flint, neither of which I was interested in at all because the covers are like sort of similar ish. You know, and I thought I actually thought this film was about like these teenagers protesting Nixon. OK, yeah, I feel I like this a, movie I, got I thought lost this was way political. I, I thought this was way because po- I actually saw election. I like election, too. But like, I thought this was like a weird, like a weirdly kind of like political Frost Nixon type of thing. Right. Uh, and I don't know where I got that opinion. I don't know either. I think a lot of people had that opinion because it was like a kind of a flop. It didn't make its budget what? back. Yeah. Holy shit. Because like it's so well regarded, like it's uh, plus 90 percent on Rotten Tomato. Well, how did this thing do? Yeah, like one in terms best of original awards? screenplay for the Academy Awards. No shit. Yeah, nominated for four awards, one original screenplay. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It was a cover that put me off being associated with other movies I didn't care about. It was, I th- I also yeah. thought it was had something to do with politics and wasn't interested at the time. Yeah, huh. but weird how yeah. those those uh, things get flipped in your mind. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Andy Johnson, thank you very much for commissioning this podcast. If you would like to do like Andy do and commission your own podcast. I'd like to make these guys watch a couple hours of stuff and talk about it. It's real easy. All you got to do is go to support.baldmove.com, click on the link to commission a podcast, put your money down on the table. Uh, we'll do the rest. If you want to do that again, support.baldmove.com. And once again, Andy, thank you for your loyalty and support. We'll see you on the next one. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. Later. <laughs>